Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I cease pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. How you doing, Dave? Doing well. Super Bowl Sunday. Coming up here tomorrow, if you're listening to the show on Saturday, Valentine's Day, the day after. Ooh, yeah. Crazy having the Super Bowl so late, but I know feels good, especially uh, in the San Antonio area where spring actually comes around March 1st. So <laughs> not bad. Yeah. Two, two more weeks of 60 degree weather and then we'll be at uh, spring. So well, well, the beauty of this schedule should be that we just go directly from Super Bowl to Pitchers and catchers reporting and off to spring training and, you know, baseball season underway. Unfortunately, <laughs> this year, that's not what's happening. So I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to resolve this soon because otherwise we're going to start seeing delays in spring training. And then that means probably delays in regular season and, and all the rest. So, you know, as, as the Super Bowl comes and goes, my mind immediately starts turning to baseball. And uh, it will be disappointing if, if we have a delay there because of this, this latest labor dispute. Let me make a wild guess that the dispute is over money. I think it might be. There, there, okay. There's some there's some rumors about that anyway. Okay. All right. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Now, yeah. the other big thing related to the Super Bowl is that we, we have a chance to pull off a really extraordinary double. And our and our and our listeners, you know, few as they are, select as they are, perhaps we should say, uh, don't realize maybe that back in the spring last year, they got the Atlanta Braves as the world series champion for both of us. And then in September, we both predicted that the Rams would win the Super Bowl. So we are, we are one Rams win away from an amazing double where six months before, before the game is played, before the world series played, we gave you, we gave you the outcome. All right. Also, of course, worth noting Saturday, Abraham Lincoln's 213th birthday, and of course, President's Day with Washington's birthday soon to come. So a lot of political as well as sports things going on this time of year. And the daddy-daughter dance on Saturday as well. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. Oh, very nice. Daddy-daughter dance. That's 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 good stuff. Is that a Geneva tradition? Yes, it is. So it'll be my first daddy-daughter dance. Uh, I think that it's been on my daughter Eliza's mind for the last two weeks. Okay. She's like, Are you excited about Saturday? And I was like, what's Saturday? She's like, the daddy-daughter dance. I'm like, oh, yeah, super excited. All right, well, on to Aristotle, uh, book five, chapters five through seven, where the topic is revolution and what causes revolution in democracies, oligarchies, and then finally, aristocracies and constitutional uh, governments. So Aristotle begins the subject in chapter five by saying that revolutions in democracies are generally caused by the intemperance of demagogues. And this is going to be a theme throughout his discussion of revolution in democracy and in oligarchy, that the demagogue plays a great and central role in pushing forth or propelling the revolution. 
in a democratic setting, uh, the method that the demagogue uses is he wants to curry favor with the people so that he points his finger at the injustice of the notables and he pressures them either to kind of give way uh, to the people or to kind of, uh, in, in many ways, kind of give way to a revolution that is certain to happen. It's interesting when you're reading through this that it reminds you of a Tocqueville's analysis of the French Revolution, where it was really kind of the pressure placed upon the nobility and that nobility early on in that revolutionary era, kind of giving in, giving in a little bit. And the more you give in, the more you justify uh, the revolution. And, and pretty soon, the more you give in, the, the less moral authority that you have uh, to rule over the regime. And without moral authority, uh, you're in great trouble. What do you make of that first um, kind of emphasis on demagoguery and, and how it occurs within a democracy, Matt? Yeah, and that's, of course, something that in the founding era was a, a matter of great concern for the American founders as they laid out their vision of representation. Uh, you know, the, the warning in Federalist 10 that we all recall, enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. Right? There's, there's a call for those who will refine and enlarge the public view to step forward. Uh, that ought to be the group that the people is looking for. Interesting. You know, if you study some of the early state constitutions, they'll talk about the qualities that people should be looking for in the leaders, the, the virtues that they ought to be seeking. Uh, William Penn's constitution as well, way back in the colonial period, talks about seeking out leaders that are that are virtuous. And of course, there's no way to make people vote for those that are virtuous, but but that's something that they want to teach the people. This is this is the criteria you should be using, perhaps more than anything else, as you evaluate candidates. But we all know that in actual historical experience in a democracy. Uh, the demagogue is often the person who's able to, to move the crowd, who's able to gather the votes. And especially where you have opportunities for stirring up crowds and then crowds to, to act based on those passions, uh, you've got a real danger in a popular regime. So certainly the demagogue is something that Aristotle, I think, rightly points out as, as one of the, the great threats in a democratic society and something that the people need to be on the lookout for and, and protected against by their own sense of dignity and a desire to, to be self-governing in a true sense and, and not just moved in their passions by those that would seek to stir them up. Yeah, and that's exactly where Aristotle goes in the discussion because he'll compare the ancient type of demagoguery with his contemporary form of demagoguery that he, he sees all around him. And he says in ancient times, the demagogues through a show of force uh, would be able to encourage a revolution. But in contemporary terms, kind of fourth century BC, uh, Athens and Greece in general, uh, in the Greek city-state, it's a rhetoric. It's this new art of rhetoric that has come into fashion that allows the demagogue um, within the public square to lead the people um, and have them do uh, what, what he wants them to do. Uh, these individuals, he says, um, are, are ignorant of military matters, so they're not gonna be able to use the sword uh, to ignite revolution. They'll use their tongue, they'll use the word. Uh, and um, it's a very, very effective uh, way to encourage revolution, especially in a time where, and this is a second change he says, is present within the contemporary um, time period he's, he's writing in, in a time where uh, democracies involve elections. So elections themselves are times where that art of rhetoric can be employed in a way to produce a revolution. So he'll stop there. 
And then he'll move on to uh, the two patent causes of, of revolutions in, in oligarchies. And he'll say that the first type of uh, cause of revolution in an oligarchy is when the oligarchs oppress the people. So anytime the oligarchs who have power are abusing their power, that will produce uh, a, a, a movement among the people uh, in, in, in a counter-revolution uh, against it, kind of a natural counter-revolution against the abuse of power. But then there are also um, is a type of um, revolution within oligarchies in which oligarchic demagogues come forward and point fingers at other uh, oligarchs. So a demagoguery not only plays a part in revolution in democratic states, but democratic uh, demagoguery, excuse me, is very front and center in oligarchic revolutions. What do you make of this? So you, we're, I think we're seeing a picture of revolution in the two most common forms of government that highlights the role of the demagogue in perhaps unjustified change. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to move a little bit forward chronologically from, from my last remarks, at the time of the American founding, the fear of the demagogue was primarily a local one. And the experience of Rhode Island or Shays Rebellion or the expectation was that you could transcend that with a, with a national government focus because there'd be no way for the demagogue to, to speak to the nation as a whole. You, 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 you need a, a national constituency. And the only way to, to put together a national constituency would be through persuasion and, and building a consensus around some notion of the common good. But now we think about our own day and the technology that's emerged over the last century, you know, think about radio, television, internet, right, social media, and the opportunity to, to stir up crowds across an entire nation simultaneously in real time, and then to keep them stirred up, uh, not just you know, by, 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 a, by, a, by a speech, but by the follow-up on the social media and on all the rest. And so I think in our day, uh, the danger of demagoguery is, is even greater because the, the reach of the demagogue uh, is greater and, and the interaction with the people is, is more immediate. So that some of the things that were thought as, as possible restraints on demagoguery in a, in a large extended republic, some of the things they were counting on at the time of the founding, those, those barriers have broken down. And so I think all the more we need to be on guard against the rise of the demagogue and the, and the arts of demagoguery as we try to navigate our, our contemporary political scene. It's interesting that earlier on in the chapter on democratic revolution, he actually mentions that, that a division of sovereignties where localities are actually electing their own magistrates, that's the, that's the way to defend against this. And you could think about that on the national stage, right? If you had a variety of different um, sovereign entities, it's, it's much more difficult, right, to, uh, to overwhelm or to persuade um, all of those uh, constituencies. But as you said, technology makes that easier. I think as does ideology, right? Which is kind of taking right. um, a very complex reality and, and reducing it to a simple form and banging the drum of that simple form and gathering together um, people to use Thomas Sowell's great um, expression uh, who have uh, an unconstrained vision of reality that, okay, if I just elect the demagogue, he's gonna put into place his program and everything's gonna be right in the world. Right, rather than that constrained sense of reality that Aristotle is constantly pushing forth uh, in his in his politics. So, last topic taken up by Aristotle here is 
when revolution is stirred up within aristocracies or constitutional governments. And it's important here to kind of go back to our framework of the different classifications of regimes. And we remember, right, that the, the true or just regimes are when the one, the few, and the many rule with a common good in mind. That's kingship, aristocracy, or what he calls constitutional government. And then there are their perversions, right? The, tyr the tyrant, tyranny, is a perversion the proper kingship is the one who rules for his own advantage. Oligarchy is the um, corruption of aristocracy. And democracy is the corruption of constitutional government. So how does revolution occur within a good and true and right government? Well, in aristocracies, revolution occurs when the mass of people, he writes, are of a high-spirited kind and they have a notion that they are as good as their rulers. Yeah, I think that's you know a place where Aristotle begins to suggest that not all revolutions are just. And I guess maybe we know that in some sense from from our history, or from uh, world history anyway. But but it's it's good to reflect upon the fact that uh, a revolution can take place for causes that are worthy and causes that are that are unworthy. It can be a, a reflection of a of a right concern over injustice and abuse on the part of those that are in, in charge, or it can be about jealousy. It can be, again, about those, those passions that are stirred up and that lead a people to throw off uh, appropriate restraints, you know, good, a good form of government that, that really ought to be submitted to and to uh, make themselves uh, masters, even if they're not really masters of themselves and not really capable of the government that they would desire to, to create in the place of perhaps the good one that they already enjoy. So I want to read on that point a, a rather longer passage, and I think that it's an essential passage here, uh, both uh, in relation to uh, Aristotle's response to Plato and Plato's concept of what revolution is in the Republic, Socrates' conception of what uh, revolution is in the Republic, and then how it relates to American history. Remember, Plato says, right, that the best regime devolves to the worst regime over time because a, a movement within what the regime loves and the people within the regime loves uh, exerts that change. But listen to what Aristotle says about change from the best type of government, government to the worst. Constitutional governments and aristocracies, he writes, are commonly overthrown owing to some deviation from justice in the constitution itself. So something is, is off, is awry in the constitution itself. It's not practiced correctly. So even those who are virtuous can make mistakes. Even a constitution that has some virtue to it can be misapplied in, in a situation. The cause of the downfall is in the former, in a uh, constitutional government, the ill mingling of the two elements, democracy and oligarchy. And in the latter, aristocracy of the three elements, democracy, oligarchy, and virtue. So the ill mingling of that which makes dem democracy good, right? The, the, the fact that there should be access or opportunity to the people, that which makes oligarchy good when it's at its best, right? That, that there is something to be merited in the work that one's done for something, and then virtue. If that uh, very difficult thing to balance 
is thrown off. Uh, if uh, property is taken away from those who merit it, uh, or that property is, um, is made further uh, by just the fact that you have property and you have an advantage over someone else, then you can produce within a good government something that is not so good. You can, you can kind of move from that aristocratic and constitutional good government to an oligarchic and democratic um, wrong government. How do you see that at work, Matt? Uh, just broadly speaking, and we're talking about 200 years of history. Can you come up with one or two examples, perhaps, where there's been an uh, ill mingling of the oligarchic and democratic uh, to the advantage, perhaps, of oligarchs or the movement towards oligarchy, and likewise to the movement uh, in the direction of democracy in the, in the American regime and American history? Yeah, well, certainly when you think about oligarchy, you think about the privileges of, of property and, and the wealthy. And, you know, you think about um, pre-Civil War, the protections for slavery. Uh, you think about uh, even post-Civil War, uh, Jim Crow laws that were used to uh, keep the descendants of freed slaves from enjoying their full civil rights and economic opportunity and reserving those for the dominant white population. Uh, so that, I think that's, that's a place where you see that oligarchic injustice within the boundaries of a legal regime that, that should have been correct. Right? Once you have the 13th, 14th, the 15th Amendments as part of the Constitution, you have the legal apparatus. You have the principles in place at the theoretical level from the Declaration of Independence all the way back there. But now you have even the legal structure in place, you might say, to do justice, uh, by all and in, in a proper way, in, in, in the way that a, a constitutional government ought to do that. And yet, because the Supreme Court won't interpret those amendments according to the original meaning, because uh, local governments, state governments will uh, persist in discriminatory behavior and, and this sort of thing, um, you don't have the realization of that. And so, you know, you have a, a stirring up, if not of, of revolution, then at least widespread civil resistance uh, in consequence of that gap between the, the principles and, and the legal theory of the Constitution and the actual practice on the ground. And on the other front, I mean, I, I mentioned before we got on the air today that you could imagine, right, a time in American history where the practice, the private practice of monopoly wasn't in and of itself unconstitutional. But you do have constitutional provisions to regulate right, interstate economy and, and trade. But then you have, I think, in part, right, the abuse of monopoly that leads to anti-monopoly measures that leads to more and more regulation right, of interstate trade and commerce that produces, right. by the end of the 20th century, an administrative state in which it believes that there's nothing, no transaction that is not within its jurisdiction, not within its purview. Right. So that, that kind of democratic response, you might say, to the oligarchic tendency of, of monopoly leads to a centralization of authority in the administrative state in an effort to, as you're saying, really uh, regulate, over-regulate, hyper-regulate uh, economic activity 
Two other things mentioned here at the end of chapter seven that are pertinent to democracies, oligarchies, aristocracies, and constitutional governments. The first is that revolution can be brought on by a trifle, you know, something that he said in the past, right? That there aren't always kind of predictable factors that you can point to where, right, if you just keep things steady here, you're going to be in good shape. Oftentimes, it's the smallest thing that's blown up to a big thing. Uh, he told us a couple uh, chapters back that the best thing that you can do is kind of be on the lookout uh, for some of these trifles. But it shows you, right, the complexity involved in trying to keep revolution at bay. But the second thing I think is really, uh, it's not a trifle. It's, it's, it's a, and very, very pertinent to American history. And that is the role that uh, internal events play in revolutions, but also external events play in revolutions. That it's not just domestic policy that leads to revolution, but it's also foreign policy. Regimes are very much changed by how outward focused they are, how external uh, they are, how they see what the meaning of the national way of life is. And certainly when you look at American history from the 18th century to the present day, you see kind of a shift in what our focus was and what we thought that we were in this world to do. Here I'm speaking of the American Republic. So as the American Republic becomes more democratized and as it becomes more internationalized, it's opened up to some form of revolution that turns it into something different than what it was at its beginning, and, and we talked about the administrative state earlier, well, you think about all of the mechanisms that go into the United States being able to, A, uh, take on some territories after the Spanish-American War, B, uh, fight in World War One, C, continue uh, to look abroad and to intervene in World War II, and then D, the Cold War in and of itself, and you see kind of an apparatus of revolution within the state uh, that is put into place uh, from uh, these wars. That's right. And so from a, American foreign policy being originally conceived as a means of protecting that republic, protecting those principles and the practices, recognizing that the American experiment in self-government was uh, essentially unique in the world and, and therefore both precious and easily endangered, and, and therefore that foreign policy needed to protect that, to then have this outward face and say, no, actually we're gonna take the show on the road. Uh, we, we wanna bring what we've enjoyed to other places and use our, our power, uh, which has grown under the care of that protective foreign policy, which allowed for internal economic development and, rising political strength, military strength, obviously a massive population growth over the course of the 19th century. You have all that in place. Now you have this power and now you're looking for something to do with it. And, and so the effort to make the world safe for democracy and then in some respects later on, make the world democratic becomes a key part of what we're doing. And, 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 and the consequence of that is that as foreign policy focuses abroad, it no longer is so concerned about protecting that which is within. And as you're saying, Dave, it's sort of these, 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 these small changes, at least apparently small changes, lead to more centralized power, uh, more reinforcement of that administrative state, and, and a real transformation of the regime. So the thing that we're taking a bribe is no longer the thing that we originally were protecting. And the regime has transformed itself even by the very act of reorienting our foreign policy toward as outward focus and, and toward bringing democracy to the rest of the world. 
All right. Well, let's uh, let's close this subject on the following note. I used to joke with my classes that to study the American Revolution and to study what could be or not be considered to be a justified revolution requires that you are open to the prospect that, okay, sometimes you, you can do the right thing by revolting. But then I noted that um, there is less of a tendency in our day to be open to revolution, right? So we'll, we'll go to the movie theater when we used to go to the movie theater and we'll watch <laughs> William Wallace and Braveheart shout out freedom at the top of his lungs and we'll cheer that revolution on. But it takes a lot for us to place ourselves in the position of an individual who's going to revolt, especially when revolution in and of itself is not allowed, is disallowed, is thought of as not justified. And I, I think that you know, there's a movement abreast today to kind of make revolution a thing of the past. We've already had the revolution we wanted. We don't want any more revolutions. And there's a great, um, great dystopian novel, one that's uh, seldom read, that's kind of in the vein of Huxley and Orwell uh, by a Russian writer named Zamyatin. And the, the novel is titled We. And I won't, I don't know the Russian translation of it. I wish I would have looked that up. But the novel works on the following premise. Uh, Zamyatin was a, was a revolutionary. And he was like all for the Bolshevik revolution. But then he realized, right, that the Bolsheviks didn't want revolution for the sake of continual revolution. They wanted revolution for the sake of an order in which all other revolutions would thereafter be stopped. So it's not revolution, right, with something in mind. It's revolution to counter the revolutionary impulse. Do you think that's at work today, Matt? Well, I think that's an interesting point of analysis for our politics because I think we see over the course of the last century that the progress that progressivism has made First, in restructuring our government institutionally, think about uh, Woodrow Wilson's administration, think about New Deal in particular, and all the apparatus that was built up around that. And you can go into the Great Society as well for additional wave of institutional reform. And, and again, you might, you might say revolution when you think about the, the result of, of all that. Uh, and then from that point on, it moved into more of a cultural phase. So you think about the way that uh, the progressive movement has conquered, the academy has conquered, the major centers of culture making in, in New York and Los Angeles, Hollywood. And, and, and so, you know, you've got this kind of power that's, that's both institutional as well as cultural. And it seems like the phase that we're entering right now is, is an effort to make that permanent, right? To establish a kind of hegemony that, that can't be overcome. And, you know, you, you see these little signs of that, um, you know, just this, this last week, this ongoing effort to deplatform Joe Rogan and, you know, to, to make it uh, beyond the pale for Spotify to host his podcast among many, many, many podcasts, right? We're going to have all kinds of music on there. We're going to have all kinds of podcasts. I mean, the, the amount of content on Spotify, right, is sort of beyond imagination, but, but this can't be. This one can't be on there. It's, it's, it's beyond the pale. Or, you know, GoFundMe, uh, their effort to cut off money for the Canadian truckers. And, you know, even though, of course, in times past, the same rules of use that they're invoking here were not invoked 
when it came to uh, the protests that followed the death of George Floyd, for example, in the summer of 2020. And so there's just this, this effort that seems to be underway to make a descent from the progressive orthodoxies very, very difficult. Now, I mean, you, you can sort of privately dissent, but how are you going to publicize that? How are you going to organize people to, to resist policies that are, that are unjust or undesirable? And you don't have to you know, be a, be a fan of Joe Rogan or, or for that matter, the Canadian truckers movement to, to recognize the danger of a situation where somebody's voice is just cut off, right? Where, where there becomes no mechanism, right? They go after the, the credit card companies. You, you can't process transactions for NRA membership anymore. Okay, well, that's a big deal. And you can say, well, just go ahead and have your own credit card company. How are you going to do that? Right, these kind of neutral platforms that are just the normal means of doing business, those are being attacked. And there's an effort there to use those platforms in a way that excludes those that won't that won't affirm progressive orthodoxies. And so, you know, it's it's, it's an encouraging sign that there's been some resistance to this. It was action by several state attorneys general and, and governors that pushed back on GoFundMe and said, okay, you know, you want to not refund the money. You want to, you know, make people reply to have it refunded. And then they're going to, you know, if, if they don't apply in a certain period of time, it's going to go to charity. That looks a little fraudulent. That's a little questionable, right? <laughs> looks like a way of gathering money and then, and then redirecting it according to your own purposes. Uh, is that something that might run afoul of some of our laws? And the investigation didn't really get it hardly underway before GoFundMe decided, no, actually, we're going to refund everybody's money directly. So we, we, we're not going to give the money to the truckers, but we're not going to talk about giving it to charity either. So there was an attempt there that, that you know, pushed back. Uh, but the difficulty is, you know, that, that rests on a rather precarious majority in Florida and some of these other states. And, and so if there's not a, a greater spirit of resistance to this effort, and that really should be one that unites left and right. You know, the the, the left um, will not do well ultimately under a system where dissent is not allowed. But but that's you know that that seems to be the last phase of this progressive revolution, and one that it's important to look for opportunities to to resist and to build out the institutional structures that allow you to do that. Yeah, my favorite film of last year ended up not winning any Oscars, but I thought it was the best film uh, was uh, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. And when I was watching it, I was thinking, just given what was going on in the country at the time, it's a, an amazing uh, argument being made there that you ought to have an allowance for dissent, right? And for revolutionary fervor, um, a, a poster uh, for the Chicago Seven, or, uh, was that you can't jail the revolution, right? You've got to make some allowance, right, for people to make a claim against the regime. So going back to Aristotle here, like what he's not suggesting here is that the solution to revolution is disallowing dissent. It's trying to get you know a proper dissent distinguished from an improper dissent along the lines of justice, but. Uh, the, the one size fits all, you know, counter-revolutionary, no revolutions allowed uh, is not the solution uh, on this front. 
yeah. So we'll move on from there to the rest of book five next week. In the meantime, we'll wrap up the show with the crystal ball. We've already previewed this. Of course, we're going to make our Super Bowl picks. Uh, the Rams are favored by four points. Uh, the over-under is 48 and a half. So I'm going to ask you for a final score, Dave, and we'll see how that tracks with the point spread and the over-under. And then also uh, give me your Super Bowl MVP. I'm going to go 38-34. Uh, Rams beat the Bengals in a thriller. And I think that, uh, as is usually the case with a high-scoring game, the quarterback of the winning team uh, is the MVP. Uh, and in this case, uh, that will be Matt Stafford. So uh, Matt Stafford uh, gets a high point of his career, uh, wins the uh, wins the Super Bowl MVP, and the Rams win a thriller against uh, the Bengals. I don't want that to happen <laughs> in the sense that I will be rooting on the Bengals, but I want that yeah. to happen given that on September 11th of last year, I predicted the Rams would win the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, we can't lose, right? So the Bengals, you root for the Bengals. If they win, you enjoy the feel-good story. Uh, and if they lose and the Rams win, then then we, we were right again. So I am going to uh, pick the Rams like also, but I don't think it'll be quite as high scoring. I'm going to say uh, 28 to 21. And I'm going to say that Cooper Cup ends up as the MVP. So I, I think there could be, you know, maybe one or two uh, interceptions on Stafford's part, but cup catches a couple of touchdown passes, maybe a late touchdown that puts them ahead for the win. So I'm, I'm barely on the over. Uh, I've got the Rams covering. You've got way over, uh, but you've got a push on, on the spread, a four point gap between the Rams and the Bengals. I think either way, we're talking about a good game. Hopefully that'll be the case. And we'll find out next week how we did. All right. Well, thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget, you can contact us at democracy in America today at gmail.com. Talk to you soon. Twitty, twitty vision.